we're live. Hi and welcome to the African Pharmaceutical Review Podcast, where we bring you insights from the pharmaceutical industry in the context of Africa as a continent. So it is World Mental Health Day. Therefore, in this episode, we'll be looking at the intersection between mental health and substance use disorder and the role pharmacists can play in the fight against the disease. So my name is Bevin Lekoyani, pharmacist and editor at African Pharmaceutical Review, and I will be your host today. So I'm thrilled to be joined by a young pharmacist, Dr. Elizabeth Muritu, who works at uh, Karuri Hospital Methadone Clinic, one of the medication-assisted therapy or MAT hospitals tucked in the heart of Kiambu County, Kenya. So welcome, Dr. Ari. Thank you. We'll jump right straight into it. So, Doc, what is a MAT clinic and how did you end up working in one? A MAT clinic is in full what we call medically assisted therapy. So a lot of confusion sometimes. I remember when we first started our clinic uh, and we would send some of our patients to the referral level 5 hospital in Kiambu. And some of our referral letters would get lost or rather like lab requests because they would be taken to maternity. So whenever people hear the word MAT, just to demystify, it should be medically assisted therapy. And that stands for the use of opioids as a substitution therapy to try and replace the harmful opioids that some, sometimes there is this dilemma of whether to call them clients or to call them patients. Yeah, they prefer the word client. Uh, so those that have been using drugs in terms of particularly the opioids that are harmful, such as heroin, which they usually inject. So we are able to use opioid substitution by virtue of using methadone or buprenorphine to be able to replace the harmful opioids. So they are able to use these relatively less harmful opioids because they are able to use them orally, like the methadone, and the buprenorphine they are able to use sublingually. That means their quality of life is able to improve because they don't spend their lives looking for these harmful substances. And so they are able to come just once a day based on the duration of action of these drugs, you know, like methadone, you'll notice is every 24 to 36 hours, compared to heroin, which has a very short half-life of around four to six hours. For the buprenorphine, could go for a duration of even up to 72 hours in our body. So they are able to now use these opioids to replace the harmful ones. Therefore, we are able to reduce the rate, rate of transmission of HIV, which as we are able to see, according to NASCOP um, survey that was done in 2020, the rate of transmission of HIV is around three to four times higher in these clients who actually um, inject drugs. So we are able to use the less harmful ones, which they only use orally, to be able to manage the withdrawals that they get once they are addicted to those other harmful opioids. And besides using the drugs, which is now the methadone and buprenorphine, it's very important to be able to note that we also do what we call psychosocial intervention, that we actually do social support. So we have quite a number of social workers in our program. We are also able to do counseling, hence the psychological support part. Therefore, this contributes to around 80 to 90 percent of the change actually so it's something for us to note that if i give you all the methadone in the world i have managed the withdrawals but i need to be able to take care of this other part of behavior which is taken care of by social integration and the counseling that our counselors are able to take you through so that's basically what we do managing opioid dependent clients using less harmful opioids i think mat clinics are the cornerstone of rehabilitation 
especially when it comes to opioid addiction. And I remember the first time I heard about it, of course, before I became a pharmacist, that concept literally didn't make sense to me. So you're giving someone opioids who's already hooked on opioids. But of course, as we later went into school and found out, you know, these are synthetic, the, the likes of methadone, they actually are key in terms of recovery. I was looking at a certain report, a survey done by Nakada, and what I noticed was that the initiation stages for clients, as you've referred to them as, for some of them, it starts quite low. And I saw that for something like tobacco, kids start as early as six years, heroin as early as 18 years. So in your experience, Doc, what would you say is the main driver that pushes people towards substance abuse and specifically opioid abuse? So the reasons for using drugs, uh, not particularly for opioids, tend to actually cut across. Interestingly, in our Kenyan setup, for instance, quite a number of people are hooked to heroin through the starting of smoking of uh, weeds or what we call bang. I don't know what different countries call it, yeah? Cannabis, yes, the more scientific name. So they, they start using cannabis. So what the suppliers are doing, they actually lace the cannabis with the heroin, for instance, because they know heroin has a very short half-life. So I am sure that once you start using that product that has the heroin, I can always have you as a customer once you're addicted every four to six hours. And so I am sure of an income out of that. So some of the reasons that um, make people to start using anyway, generally drugs, we see a lot of poor relationships in families where you find some of the children have poor support and poor guidance from their parents. There's also a lot of peer influence. And just before I leave the, the previous part, it would be interesting to note that you'll notice quite a number of our clients, almost 70 something percent, and especially the men, because they are the highest number, 90 something percent you'll find that they do not actually have a father figure who was able to kind of direct them and be able to uh, kind of be a bit strict in terms of the guidance. So as I said, poor family relationships, some of them even have grown up in families where parents are also using. So availability of that drug, it's very easy to be able to find it. There's also peer influence. Uh, there are also childhood trauma experiences that people have gone through. Probably it cost them also mental health disorders that we've already mentioned that they have not been able to deal with. And then you realize later that because they have not dealt with that, they run into drugs to be able to kind of cope with the situation. So I think those are some of the major, major reasons that I actually see for use of drugs. Yeah. You know, the thing is, when I was growing up, I knew like even if I was to be influenced or peer pressured into drug abuse or something, the one drug I knew I wouldn't try is heroin. And the reason is, I've always thought that heroin is this drug which is expensive or something. Or, you know, heroin, cocaine, those are drugs that are expensive. They are quote-unquote a rich man, drugs of choice and all that. But through my research, I found out that it's not really the case. So, Doc... How much does heroin, in your experience, cost in Kenya? And the reason why I'm asking this is because you find that the people who are abusing drugs are not extremely well off. You understand what I mean? And you find people who are regular Jews, but they are still able to find a way of getting these drugs. So 
these drugs can't be 200,000 shillings or $1,000 per pop. So do you have an idea of how much these drugs are cost? Yes, I do have an idea. Like in the Kiambu County setup, for instance, which would represent more or less the Kenyan setup because the range is around the same. You'll find a sachet for which you can scoop with your, let me say your little nail, I mean the fingernail, amount as little as that that you're able to scoop in one sachet. It goes for a range of between 100 to 150. How much do these clients use? Remember, there's something called tolerance. So I may have started with one sachet, and then I realized that one is not able to sustain my level of addiction. So you'll find some clients that use even up to 20 sachets in a day. That tells you multiply 150 times, you know, 20, for instance. Somebody may end up using up to 3,000 in a day for the drugs only. What does that tell you? And I get your concern when you say that some of these uh, clients do not seem to be coming from well-off background. So what happens is that the rate of crime is very high among the people who use drugs. Those are the kind of guys who will pickpocket you or, you know, whatever it is. Because withdrawals have set in. I am already now sick because I am addicted. I either have to get them, that money or get it. So that is where the concept of the crime rate becomes very high among these people who actually use drugs. So it's not that they have it. They will get it from somewhere. Some of them now have stolen whatever it is they can steal from their homes. They probably do not even have good relationships anymore with their families. And now when everything is over at home, they have sold whatever they have and now gone even into the neighborhoods. So that's how they are able to sustain their drug use habit. You know, there's this place in coast. I don't want to mention the exact town because I don't want to be told that I'm defaming a city. But there is a place where, like when you're in public transport, you cannot have your windows open. And it's an area that is well known for drug abuse. So what happens is the people who are the clients who are abusing drugs, they usually keep an eye there for people who are exposing their phones or something like that or can pickpocket a wallet or something. So I completely understand when you say that these people are willing to do anything to have what you call, quote-unquote, their fix, which is just saddening. So turning back to the MAT clinic or the medically assisted therapy clinics, what is your typical role as a pharmacist in this setup? How do you add value to these clients? One of the things you will understand about people who use drugs is that they have a very poor health-seeking behavior. So somebody has a wound and you can clearly see by the time they, you know, decide I'm going to hospital. And mind you, because of the virtue that some opioids have the analgesic effect, sometimes they're not even feeling the pain. They're supposed to be coughing. Some of the opioids also have the cough suppressant effect. They are not coughing. So you'll find they already even got TB a long time ago. So with the poor health-seeking behavior, if I am not very keen on medication use counseling, then we lose it. So that is one of the things that we are very keen on. And even with my team, uh, to the extent that it has now become as an area of evaluation, that we need to be very sure how much amount of information can this client actually give me back once I have been able to advise them on how they are going to use drugs. And we do it on the day they come. And even after they leave, say like two days later, I need to be sure, because you can imagine as well, if a client has been using drugs, say, over 20 years, how much uh, effect has that had on their brain? Even in terms of their memory, it's not very good. 
So not to belabor the point, but the point is we need to ensure there is very good medication use counseling. Of course, to also observe any adverse effects from the methadone, like, you know, we recently had a new product um, that was not going very well with many clients. And we really had to ensure, you know, are the pharmacovigilance forms filled so that then we are able to send that to PPB and that makes decisions in terms of the next product that is brought and from whatever supplier. Some of the other things is to ensure that the clients, for the same reason of poor health-seeking behavior, unless we can't avoid it, eh? For drugs like the ARVs, because I already told you the rate of transmission of HIV is very high, drugs like anti-TBs, we allow them to take as DOT, directly observed therapy. So as I give them the methadone, because they come for it every day, I am able to actually give them these other drugs so that then they are not missing a dose and their theorems becomes very good. What are some of the other roles? The general ones of making sure that I report how much methadone we consumed for the month, how much I have at the moment, how much we need, do proper quantification. By the way, I like to make the joke that this is the kind of clinic you cannot tell the clients, client we are OS. Yeah, because then when I, what are you telling them? You're probably telling them, go and use a bit of heroin. So it becomes very critical to be able to do very proper quantification. It's more or less like the kind of quantification we do in the HIV ARVs program. But you always need to be very keen and to ensure that your stock levels are well monitored so that you don't tell your clients, I am OS for methadone. And on that point, on being OS, where do you source for this methadone? Because, you know, most suppliers, just like any, and we saw this with the COVID-19, supply chains can get affected from reasons beyond you as a pharmacist. You can do all the quantification and forecasting, but there are certain unforeseen events that can happen and it will affect your supplies. So where do you get this methadone? And beyond the quantification and forecasting, how do you ensure that the supply always is there? So what we do, we prepare the reports. We have them, we call them the forms P7 and the P8. Then uh, that's the end of every month. And then I am able to send them to NASCOP pharmacist who is responsible for being able to review them once he's comfortable with the quantities that we've been able to do, mostly including one month consumption, two months buffer, he's able to forward those reports now to the chemsa pharmacist, having told him, supply this to this smart clinic, supply this to this smart clinic. So mostly that's what we do. Well, for us and for where I work, we are a bit lucky. Uh, maybe not for the methadone but for the buprenorphine, that sometimes our donor program have also ensured we have a bit of buffer. Because like the buprenorphine, which has been a relatively new product in the Kenyan setup, has not been very consistent in terms of supply, even from NASCOP. I think they're still trying to balance now that it's a new product. But our donor program has ensured we have a bit of buffer just to cover for some of those situations. But of course, we use that as a last result. But I would say so far, so good. At least there is not a day I have had to send a client away without uh, their dose of mat. Yeah. Perfect. Now, what would you say is the best part about um, the job you do? Something to be able to demystify and to probably help us even in a better understanding. 
is that addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease once you have that understanding you are also able to feel the joy of supporting these clients through their addiction journey there are times i have been able to see them transformed instead of now being in the what we call the dense which is the place where they do the injecting of drugs and the sourcing of the same they now have a life they're taking this methadone once a day they don't have to inject so less risk in terms of bloodborne infections you're able to support them better as i had mentioned we try to make our clinics very comprehensive by that i mean i have my methadone here i have my ncd drugs in the same place because once you start telling them go to opd to get whatever drug they will not go so anyway, once you're able to support them so comprehensively, you've explained to them how they're supposed to use the drugs. They come after two days and they are able to repeat the same information knowing the journey they have walked. Uh, it is so fulfilling for me. And also now being able to see them transform, get a job, get a family. Um, I think for me, it is, it is quite fulfilling. I, I actually really appreciate it when I am able to interact with a client clinically. Because I also have other, you know, paperwork, supervisory responsibilities. But the clinical part is very close to my heart because I see this client be able to transform and at least have a different kind of quality of life. So for me, that's the most fulfilling. And I completely agree because the thing that people probably don't understand is when someone is addicted to drugs, the impact is not just on themselves. Impact transcends into their families, the impact transcends into their friends and all that. So when you have this impact and you have this intervention and they're able to get back to work and get back to their families and all that, you see that positivity also cascades to their families. Now, on the flip side of that, what is the hardest part of your job? It is not an easy environment sometimes to work in. And especially because, as we said, drug use changes even the functionality of your brain. And so the behaviors of these clients have also not been very positive, like we said, into crime, into using all kinds of big words, if I have to say it like that. So sometimes we are also on the receiving end. We will receive threats. We will receive some abuses. I was making a joke to my boss the other day telling her, hey, okay, I think in such a setup we need an abuse allowance, you know? Anyway, of course, with time, we have been conditioned to kind of be able to accept them and be able to understand that they won't change immediately. So that is what is able to, you know, give you a different kind of feeling even as you serve them. Uh, but it is not easy at first, and especially when you come into the program. Sometimes also we have been in a situation where we are almost having no supplies. Probably they are so late or such kind of a thing for buprenorphine, like I said, were it not for the fact that sometimes you have a bit of buffer, we have been in situations where we don't know how to survive now that it's a new product. So some of those really give me anxiety. I'm like, if I don't have methadone tomorrow, what will I tell my clients, you know, go and use a bit of heroin. It's usually an anxious moment for me as well. Okay, now I remember one of the local news stations in Kenya did a feature about substance abuse, particularly heroin, at the coast. For some reason, the coast is really affected by this. I'm not 100% sure about the numbers, but I can almost bet the numbers are up there in terms of being the highest. And basically, they were doing a feature of this girl who, you know, the typical story, a 17-year-old girl met this group of friends, ended up in bars and clubs. 
and got introduced to heroin. Mind you, at 17 years old. Yeah? And then she's not really from a well-off family. So sustaining, sustaining the drug use became an issue. And what I found out from the feature is apparently these clients tend to share needles. So, of course, she shared these needles and she ended up being infected with HIV and also had a child who also got infected to vertical transmission. And for me, it was such a sad situation. So she was trying to put her life back together, but it was such a sad situation because at the time, I think when they're doing the feature, she had now turned to 19. So imagine 19 years old, abusing heroin, HIV positive baby who's HIV positive. So the point I'm trying to bring out is in your experience, staring into the face of substance abuse, what is the worst case you have ever seen and you are like, uh, this thing can actually get this bad? To comment on the cost situation, you know that it's because the heroin comes in through the Indian Ocean. So that's why the numbers there are quite high. And something else about the heroin at the coast, it's also very pure. You know, as it comes this way, I mean, to the upper side, away from the coast, people keep adding a lot of, you know, very bad substances, including talcum powder, you know, whatever it is, to just try and increase the quantity. You know, we, and money, I don't want to say we Kenyans, <laughs> but we all seem to love money to that extent. Yeah, so I think that's the situation. Actually, at the coast, at the moment, we probably have around six to seven of the mud clinics because of that. And now to my situation in terms of the worst experience. I remember a client we had who was not very young, really, probably in his 50s then. But he had used, started with alcohol, which is a thing that happens with quite a number of our clients. By the time most of them come, by the way, they are not using the, let me say, lesser kind of substances. Things like alcohol are considered a lesser kind of substances. They have graduated over time and now to be able to use the heroin. But him, he had used alcohol for a long time. So he comes into our clinic. For clients who have a high level of dependence, that is more than 12 months, according to the DSM diagnostic criteria, DSM-5, that talks about addiction. More than 12 months. For him, you see now he had used over 20 years. Now when he comes, he already has a heart condition. I think it was called pulmonale. And so you want to be careful in terms of initiating this methadone. Because one of the side effects is that it can also cause QT prolongation. So you are torn, yet he's already having the withdrawal. So he clearly needs to have us manage his, his withdrawal. So he has copalmonale. Little did we know, he starts having chest issues. Then we need to start anti-TBs. It turns out that he, he had TB as well. We cannot give him methadone because of the heart issues of QT prolongation. He has already been taking alcohol. You can imagine the impact on the liver. The option we have is to start him on buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is also a potential hepatotoxic drug. But what choice did we have at that point? Because we are worried now if we start them with that one. So we ended up starting him on low amount of uh, buprenorphine. But it was not long before, you know, he had full-blown acute liver failure. Because imagine being on anti-TBs. Uh, think about pyrazinamide and the effect. He now has been taking alcohol for a long time. He's now on buprenorphine as well. So, in fact, I'm the one who noticed that eh, these symptoms, you know, he's having hepatic encephalopathy, he's having tremors, what we call asterixis. He was also uh, having jaundice. It was very clear. So, we admit him a few days. So, he still has withdrawals. So, you may still need to continue with a bit of buprenorphine. 
Anyway, what I'm trying to say is we did everything possible to do the interventions. But unfortunately, having invested all our emotions, all our knowledge, we ended up losing such a client. It's a situation where you feel, what more options do I have? As much as I have all this knowledge, I am trying to put it together. Yeah, you wish you could save the situation, but there is not much you can do. So if only when people are getting into drugs, because I know at first it's usually a choice, but then once it gets to addiction, it's not a choice anymore because you're having withdrawals, you're having cravings once you don't take. But I wish that people actually knew once you're starting to use them, what could be awaiting for you in terms of the potential chances of addiction. And, and something that our clients like to say about heroin, maybe just to scare us a bit <laughs> with regard to trying it, is that they call it in Kiswahili, nionje unitafute. That would mean if you test me, you're going to look for me. Yeah, so it feels very nice at the beginning and very, very soon you are addicted. So it's for us to just be aware. 100% and I fully agree. People need to really think about the implications of what may be awaiting you like down the line. So now you had mentioned earlier about donors and key players who through all their efforts were able to see successes of these mat clinics. So who are the main partners whose efforts ensure that these programs run efficiently? Yeah, so as you said, very critical. Um, so far in our program, we have a donor who is called Medicines Sun Frontiers or what they say, Doctors Without Borders. They provide a lot of the financial support. Number one, they put up the clinic in the level four hospital to kind of help kickstart. Of course, they work very closely with the county government because the county government was just being supported, but ultimately is to take over because these are our clients. And I like to tell my colleagues, they are our clients. Sometimes when they are coming to the methadone clinic, it looks like they are for Karori or whichever other facility but they are in our community. So the county government, the donors, we also have what we call the civil society organizations. Like in our case, we work closely with LVCT, who are the people that prepare these clients on the ground, in the dens. They go for reach out programs where they actually talk to these clients about, if you're not ready to come for the MAT program, you would rather get one or two clean needles to use because we have understood that um, we cannot make the clients stop using drugs just by telling them stop once they get to the place of addiction. But through continuous, you know, reaching out to them and supporting them, that's what now the civil society organizations do. But ultimately, once they are ready to come out of the dance, they prepare them for the methadone program. And so they tell them what it is about, then they bring them for induction into the MAT clinics. The referral facilities that we work closely with, when we have our clients, because ours is an outpatient rehabilitation center. So by virtue of this, uh, I am actually grateful. I have gotten to interact quite with quite a number of my uh, colleagues in the various referral facilities because we admit our clients there. And it means such clients will still have to take their methadone. So we need to supply uh, such facilities with the number of days the client is there. So they are really supportive and we really appreciate for the same. So I would say those are the major, major stakeholders. 
Yeah, of course, for any successes, it's difficult to be able to achieve something on your own. So it makes sense to be having these partners to ensure that the overall success actually is achieved. So even as we're looking at successes and achievement of goals and all that, what, in your opinion, do you think can be done, specifically in the government sense, in terms of policy and regulation to ensure that this issue of substance use of mental health is actually something that is prioritized. So you find, of course, ACADA plays its role when it comes to creating awareness and public education and all that. But I still believe that more can be done. So in terms of policy and regulation, how do you think it should evolve or should be restructured to ensure that we don't have people dying because of substance abuse or young kids getting into substance abuse, especially from a young age? So I would say some of the things that the government can do, of course, like at NASCOP level, I'm sure they have a kitty for awareness. They definitely have a kitty for advocacy. So in the place of awareness, if it's NACADA we are talking about, for instance, are they able to have more people on the ground explaining to these young people as they start using their weed, their cannabis, that their chances, that which you think is that, could actually be laced with that heroin, for instance. In place of advocacy, you'll notice because of the high crime rate, that these plants end up being quite incarcerated sometimes from one prison to another and especially because behavior change is a process sometimes it takes some time but once these clients are there can we actually have where now the prison uh, wardens are also well made aware about such clients and how they can be able to support them they should also be trained to be able to observe or withdrawals and how to easily refer even to to such mad clinics because we work very closely in terms of being able to ensure even a client who is in prison is also supported with their methadone and we really appreciate by the way i forgot to mention for those prison stakeholders as well who have been quite supportive in this journey we would say in terms of uh, clients who are recovering and doing better I know it has also not been easy in the side of PPB. You are aware that methadone, buprenorphine, they are opioids and very highly controlled drugs. But for clients who, you know, have been able to change, they are probably unable to come for their treatment because of, you know, maybe a job or school. We have been able to collaborate, but I know this is an ongoing kind of, you know, uh, policy review that uh, these clients should be supported such that they can have their dose at home as long as we already trust the client, such that they're able to not miss work, not miss school, because we're also trying to improve their quality of life. We are happy to say that we've been able to do that for a number of clients, and we have seen them be able to really transform. So I think those are some of the things that we can do to be able to really support our clients. Yeah. In the cases of uh, quantification and the like for ensuring we have enough supplies, so we continue to encourage the donors that have been providing methadone and buprenorphine for free uh, that they will continue to also not be too tight. They can continue to support us so that we have enough for our clients as long as they are able to because I know that's one of the gaps that have also been there in the recent past. 
So I was thinking about what you said in terms of the prison, and it's something I've always thought about. So there is that correlation with crime and substance abuse, and inevitably these patients get into the prison. So I've always wondered what happens when such patients actually end up in prison. I don't know, are they really taken care of? So it's good that you have clarified that, and policy should be put in place to ensure that there is capacity building at the prisons and there's more partnership with the mat clinics to ensure that the treatment goes on despite what the clients may have done in terms of their crime. So finally, when it comes to this mat clinics and provision of opioid-assisted therapy, how do you see these clinics evolving in terms of technology, in terms of how efficient they can be? How do you see the future like for mat clinics, not only in Kenya, but in Africa in general, for them to be more impactful and more effectively run? So two things come to mind when you say that. And number one, we've been talking for quite some time about uh, the fact that we need to have a synchronized kind of system. We use a system called the Meta Measure to be able to key in the details of these clients and we use it for dispensing as well. And so we were thinking a situation where this system is, is synchronized in such a way that you don't have duplication of clients in some mat clinics. Because sometimes they have a tendency to go, assume they defaulted for some time. They go to, into a different mat clinic and they do not say that I was using, for instance, methadone in a different mat clinic. Maybe they are afraid, maybe they did something wrong and were too afraid to go back. But a synchronized system would help us to easily be able to support our clients such that I'm not afraid. Could they have gone to the other side and taken methadone, come here and taken because now you're worried about overdose? for instance, in such a case. Most of the time, you are forced to do it manually. You know, I have to know that pharmacist in that clinic, call them. But with a synchronized kind of biometric system, it would have been very easy to actually locate. Something I also really hope that we can be able to achieve is that there will not be localized kind of mat clinics to serve mat clients. Rather, because some of these clients, imagine having to come every day to Karori, for instance, some of them coming from a bit far, the amount of cost implications and considering they're coming every day and you're not sure if you're aware that a client should be on the MAT program for at least a year for us to actually say, you know, we've addressed the withdrawals part, we have addressed the psychosocial part, and now we are confident. So imagine having to come every day using your transport. Imagine a situation where there was a provision for there is a measure machine in the main hospital near that client such that they can now be able to access their pharmacy and poisons board is able to support even such facilities to be able to, you know, they are allowed to also dispense methadone. I look forward to such a day because I think it will make it really easy for our clients. But of course, I know it is not cheap because we need to ensure that the measure machines are well availed. But I think that would be really coming in handy in that area. And I completely agree because when you bring in technology, of course, it always elevates the level of service. And that's a perfect place to end that. So we'll end it there. And thank you so much, Dr. Elizabeth, for sharing your insights. So on behalf of African Pharmaceutical Review, myself and Dr. Elizabeth herself, thank you all for listening. And we hope you'll join us in the next episode. See you. <music>